Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And as you are turning to Acts 20, I will pray for our time in the Word. Lord, we give you thanks for this morning to gather together in your name. And I do pray that as we open the Word, that you would work through it in our hearts and our minds powerfully, that we would continue to fall deeper in love with your Word, deeper in love with you. Pray that you would strengthen us encourage us, challenge us where we need in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In Acts chapter 20, we'll begin in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained or purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this is our third and final Sunday in the book of Acts as we have been considering Paul's major speeches that we find in Acts 13, Acts 17 and Acts 20. Now, I've mentioned for the past couple of Sundays that to frame the book of Acts, we have Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to his disciples, 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that last part, to the ends of the earth, that's where Paul comes in. Because the Lord had set Paul apart for the ministry of the gospel to go forward to the ends of the earth, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 13, where Paul proclaimed the gospel to mostly a Jewish audience, then at Acts 17, to mostly a Gentile audience. And here in Acts chapter 20, Paul is going to address a Christian audience, specifically the elders at Ephesus. I will apply this more broadly to the elders. I will seek to apply it to our whole church. But having said that, what Paul offers here is a bit of a farewell address. Now, with that in mind, I want you to imagine a scenario. Think about at the end of your life, if you were to give a bit of a farewell address, that you would call together your family and your friends, they would gather together, and when you would show up, there'd be this huge banner above you that says, your name, a life well lived. What would that mean? a life well lived. So as you reflect on your life, what would you speak about? Or what do you think you would speak about? And especially to the loved ones whom you would leave behind, what would you encourage them towards? There's that sense of what Paul is doing here in our, in our passage this morning of, of looking back and then speaking forward with exhortations. But it's this question, what is truly worth loving, and living for? I realize the answer, it's easy, we're in church. The answer's Jesus, right? But what contends for that? So let's go from the end of life and a farewell address to uh, the end of high school. And let's consider high school superlatives. If you're familiar with that, these are superlative expressions of praises. These are the awards you know, for graduating seniors, things like most popular, um, best dressed, most athletic, things that, you know, 95% of the graduating class feels really bad about themselves because they do not win. But what I want to do is, is talk about these superlatives, realizing many of you may not have experienced this, and I want to have a bit of fun with this but also to make the point that I think these give us a window at times into our culture. What do we really value? What's important? What do we live for and long for? So I, uh, I googled some, some good ones, things like best personality, best dressed, most athletic, most intellectual, class heartthrob, best Snapchat stories, most likely to become internet famous, life of the party, most popular, most likely to succeed. Not necessarily bad in and of themselves. And again, um, I know this is meant for fun in high school, but again, it can be a window into our broader culture because it's all about perspective. What makes for the good life? What's worth living for? And if I could summarize a lot of this, and the culture around us at times, it's, it's about money and possessions. It's about entertainment. It's about excitement. It's about pleasure. 
It's about all the likes that I get on social media. Look at me, look at me, please, please look at me. It's about success and however that gets defined in the culture around us. And the question is one of perspective. What is life really about? What is loving? What is worth loving and living for? And the answer that Paul gives really boils down to this. Because we have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ, we must live for him. We see it in this passage. We see it throughout his letters. Because of Christ, we live for him. Paul puts it well in Philippians 1, where he says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at first Paul's perspective on life and ministry, and then we'll find in here his exhortations to the elders. But first, uh, his perspective. In verses 17 and 18, uh, Luke, who is the author of Acts, tells us that Paul calls the elders together. They gather together, and Paul begins by saying, hey, you know from day one how I lived among you. And the reason Paul says this is that uh, there's been a smear campaign going on against Paul as he has continued from city to city to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is spreading, but so is persecution. And, um, and his opponents are seeking to, uh, to sabotage his message of the gospel. And so Paul is reminding them of how he, have lived, how he has lived among them. Now, this is important for a couple reasons. One is the things that Paul talks about, some of the themes here, we see throughout the rest of his letters. But also this. This is a farewell speech that gives us perspective and it shows us the heart of Paul and it's important for us to see the kind of heart that he has that drove his ministry. So first, um, Paul's heart. In verse 19, Paul reminds them, he says, I serve the Lord with all humility, with tears. And he said, and I did not shrink back in the midst of trials. Okay, First, he says, I serve the Lord with all humility. That's the first thing he mentions. Why humility? What's so significant about humility? Well, Paul answers this question more thoroughly later on in his life, and this would be in his ministry, and this is in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Here's what Paul says about humility. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul begins with humility because he is following his Savior. 
that Jesus humbled himself by taking on flesh in the incarnation. And then he humbled himself by taking on the cross. He did this to draw sinners to himself. As I was pondering uh, humility, I turned on my shelf to a, to a book, um, I'd say it this way to borrow uh, Bill's phrase, to an old dead guy who wrote, if not the book on humility, a significant book on humility. It's Andrew Murray, his book, Humility and Absolute Surrender. Here's what he says about humility. He says, what is the incarnation but his heavenly humility, his emptying himself and becoming man? What is his life on earth but humility, his taking the form of a servant? And what is his atonement but humility, He humbled himself and became obedient to death. And what is his ascension and his glory, but humility exalted to the throne and crowned with glory. He humbled himself, therefore God highly exalted him. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love, capital E, capital L, the eternal love humbled himself clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. He goes on. If humility be the first, the all-including grace of the life of Jesus, if humility be the secret of his atonement, then the health and strength of our spiritual life will entirely depend upon our putting this grace first too, making humility the chief thing we admire in him the chief thing we ask of him, the one thing for which we sacrifice all else. Now, he has one more quick paragraph I want to read. I thought about this paragraph a lot in in light of the last year. Here's what he says. I cannot too earnestly plead with my reader, if possible, his attention has never yet, or if possibly his attention has never yet been specially directed to the lack of, there is of humility within him or around him to pause and ask whether he sees much of the spirit of the meek and lowly lamb of God in those who are called by his name. Let him consider how all lack of love, all indifference to the needs, the feelings, the weaknesses of others, all sharp and hasty judgments and utterances, so often excused under the plea of being outright and honest, all manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, all feelings of bitterness and estrangement, have the root in nothing but pride that ever seeks itself and his eyes will be open to how a dark, shall I not say a devilish pride, creeps in almost everywhere, the assemblies of the saints not exempted. And he goes on to say, this is our prayer then. Oh, for the humility of Jesus in myself and all around me. Following the Savior in his humility is what we are called to. And I I do love the way Augustine put it. For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second. Humility is the third. So Paul served with all humility. He also served with tears, he says, And he mentions tears twice, both in 19 and then in 31. He says, remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Okay, now, just think for a second. 
what activates our God-given tear ducts? I came up with three answers. One is tears of joy, or you could say laughter. Second one, tears of pain or sorrow. Third one, cutting onions. But my sermon has nothing to do with that. So back to tears of sorrow. For Paul, this is where we see Paul's heart and perspective. Paul did not weep for his bruises and his wounds, but rather what he was anguished over was the thought of Christians being led astray to a false doctrine or non-Christians not hearing the gospel of the grace of God. So we have, in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, Paul talks about his tears, especially with respect to Christians. He said, For I wrote to you out of much afflictions and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And the context there is anguish over Christians who might be led astray by false teachers. The next one, Philippians 3 and verses 18 through 19 Paul says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So that's his heart for non-Christians. And these are significant, But because what, what do we know about, uh, about Paul? Paul was the apostle all about truth. Like, the man wrote Romans but he was also about tears. Truth with love. Truth with love. Paul understood he had been purchased by the blood of Christ. That truth and what he wanted out of love is for everybody, everybody to live their lives in light of that. Then in verses, or in 19, it continues on. Or Paul says, he served the Lord with humility, with tears, and with trials due to persecution. What I want us to consider here is Paul's boldness, his suffering, because again, it was all about perspective. In verses 20 and 21, Paul reminds uh, the elders that he did not shrink back from declaring everything that they needed to hear. Paul says, I taught you in public and I taught you public, uh, and I taught you in private, in your homes. I taught Jews, I taught Gentiles, and what I taught was all about repentance and faith in Christ. I did not shrink back from telling you exactly what you needed to hear. And then look at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await, we, uh, await me. Okay, now let's just, just think about this. So Paul is saying, I have to move forward, and as I move forward with the gospel, I know afflictions and prison awaits me. But Paul's already been there, done that. He's already experienced prison and afflictions. There's a couple of stories here from Acts 14. If you recall, it's Paul and Barnabas. They were in the city of Iconium. And Luke tells us that they were speaking boldly for the Lord. 
But some in the crowd did not like that message, stirred up opposition, and they sought to stone Paul. But he escaped to Lystra, like, whew, dodged a bullet. And then he continues preaching in Lystra. But what we find out is those same opposition, the mob that wanted to stone him in Iconium, they travel, both from Iconium and some from Antioch, they travel to Lystra, where they do succeed this time, and they stone Paul. And they, Luke tells us, they drag him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And the disciples, Luke says, gathered around him. Now, it doesn't say anything more whether they gathered around to pray or gathered around to mourn. But then Luke tells us, but Paul rose up, and the Bible does not say ran for his life in the other direction. It says he entered back into the city where everybody who stoned him was uh, in the city. Then, next story, Acts chapter 16. This time, Paul is in Philippi. He's with Silas. Long story short, they get attacked again. The crowd tore the garments off of them. There were orders given for them to be beaten with rods. Luke tells us, and when they had inflicted many blows, they threw them in prison. Luke goes on to say, about midnight, Paul and Silas were picking the locks. Yeah, that's not what it says. Just seeing if you're listening. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Then an earthquake hits. That's no coincidence. So the jail doors fly open so that Paul can escape, but he doesn't. He stays back and has another opportunity to share the gospel. So Paul in our passage says he's going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen except that imprisonment and afflictions await him. Again, Paul, you've been there, done that. Why? Why take the hard road? Why keep going? So let me ask this question of us. So after our service today, if you knew that once you leave those doors, what awaits you is persecution for your faith, imprisonment, affliction, what are you tempted to do? Are you tempted to linger here for a while in the name of fellowship? Right? Um, Pray with the elders, uh, but pack a lunch and a dinner for you and for them? Right? Are we tempted to flee out the back door, to quit, to run, escape, to compromise? We have no indication that Paul delayed his trip whatsoever. Paul was about bold obedience. And why? Is it because Paul had that kind of personality? Is that what this is about? It is not. It is about his passion. It is about his perspective. What Paul understood is that more precious than his life is the gospel. More precious than his life is the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. And then they are sons and daughters 
and then sent out with a mission. It's all about perspective. And we see this. Verse 24 is the key here. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, saying, It's not my life that's precious. It is the gospel, the grace of God that is precious. And it really comes down to, it's the Lord of the Rings question. What is precious? What do we really consider as precious in our life? What is worthy of our humility, of our tears, of all the trials we go through? What is worthy of our testimony to testify to? What is worthy? It's one thing. It is the gospel of the grace of God. I find it interesting that Paul had such a healthy view of God's sovereignty, and that did not lead him to cold indifference. It did not lead him away from building bridges into people's lives so that he could share the gospel. It did not lead Paul to say, you know, God's sovereign, so if he wants them saved, he'll do it. What it did, God's sovereignty, a healthy view of God's sovereignty, led Paul to understand that God is able to powerfully be at work breaking down the barriers of the heart and mind to bring people to a saving faith. And that drove him. So we may, as Christians, and we will, experience more pressure, persecution even. And what do we do when persecution hits? Are we ready? We need to get out our weapons. Our weapons of humility, of tears, as we pray for our enemies, the weapon of enduring trials with the right perspective to show the world that there is something greater worth living for than our lives. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, but whatever gain I had, okay, pause, insert high school superlatives, those awards, whatever I had, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It was all about perspective. Now, let's look the, the transition at some of Paul's exhortations to the elders. So in verses 20, uh, 25 through 27, um, Paul, essentially with the elders, reminds them of his life. He reminds them that he will not see them again. But he says, my hands are clean. I've not, uh, I've not shrunk back from declaring everything that you need to hear. And then he gives some exhortations, and it's this. Pay careful attention. He says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves Paul will later on in 1 Timothy 4, 16, say something similar. Tell Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or the doctrine. Okay. So there are some really powerful images in Scripture that encourage us to keep a close watch on ourselves. I'll just, I'll name three of them. So if you remember back to Cain, what God told Cain 
as Cain was jealous of his brother Abel, God said, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you. You must rule over it. Okay? And then Peter picks up a similar theme in 1 Peter chapter 5, where he says, humble yourselves. You know, same thing as Paul. Humble yourselves. He says, be sober-minded, be mindful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we have another image of, of Jesus in, this, in the uh, parable of the sower, where Jesus tells them that um, the, the thorns, be careful of the thorns that can grow up and choke out. And these are the thorns, they're, they're, they're explained as the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of life. And what's interesting about all three of these is there's an assumption that something is already crouching at our door, that there are weeds that are already growing around us. And the question is, for me, for all of us, what's already crouching at your door? What's already growing in your life? It's thorns of greed. Is it lust? Is it idolatry? Bitterness, anger, jealousy. What comes to your mind even right now? Where is the enemy tempting you? Tempting you to bring shame upon the gospel. Tempting you to just merely be distracted from living your life fully for God. Paul says, pay very careful attention to yourselves. And then he goes on, verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so again, Paul is addressing the elders who are called as under-shepherds under the good shepherd, right? And they're to oversee the flock. And Paul goes on to talk about the danger, pay careful careful attention and to watch out for um, the fierce wolves that will come in among, seeking to devour the sheep and the twisted teaching that will come in. But again, I want to broaden this for all of us. So if I could just give a paraphrase on verse 28. Be careful, pay careful attention to care for each other whom God cares for and has purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And how do we care for one another? Verse 31, Paul says this, therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish or warn everyone with tears. So there's a combination here of of truth but with tears. It's truth with love. We build each other up truth with love in each other's lives. Verse 32, Paul commends them to God. Listen to his words here. It says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So again, 
How do we build each other up? How do we care for each other? It's truth with love. It's building each other up by the word of his grace, what God has given us, what we do together and what we encourage others to to, to join us is we worship, we are in the word together, we have Bible studies, we have life groups, we commit ourselves to one another, we teach our kids, not only our own kids at our own homes and at church, but we come alongside and we teach other kids here, right? We pray for each other, we care for each other. We watch our own lives because what you all really need from me, just still a line from um, another old dead guy, um, what you need from me most of anything is my own personal holiness. It's what you need, it's what my family needs, what we need from each other is holiness. So we watch our own lives, but we watch each other's lives, not in a creepy way, right? But with truth and love, And then, Paul ends in uh, 33 and 35, 33 through 35, he reminds them using the words of Jesus. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He says, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Now, this is not a direct quote in our scriptures. This is either Paul's summary or it could have been a saying from Jesus handed down to Paul from others who heard Jesus Having said that, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We could say it this way, as Mark puts it in the heart of his gospel, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's more blessed to give. No one did that greater than Jesus who gave of himself on the cross. He gave of his precious blood so that we could live for him. So I want to wrap up this sermon this morning with this. Uh, We began by considering a farewell speech as we reflect on what is really worth our love, what is worth living for. We contrasted that with the high school superlatives, the awards, as an examples of what not to follow, except one I left one out, most likely to save the planet. Paul was all about salvation to the ends of the earth, right? But I want to offer another set of superlatives. Again, these are expressions of praise. But this time from Jesus. It was Paul who often said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what Paul is seeking to do. And so for us to follow Christ, what does that look like? How about this set of superlatives? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. I want to read through these, but I want us to hear the Beatitudes from Jesus and the echo. We'll hear Paul in this as well in, in, in Acts chapter 20. Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek. Paul said he served the Lord with humility. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, meaning their sin and the sin of the world. Paul said he served the Lord with tears. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are the pure in heart. Paul said, pay careful attention to your life and to this word of grace. 
Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Paul said, care for the flock. Remember the weak. It's better to give than to receive. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul said, he did not shrink back from testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, making peace with God. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake. Paul said in his trials, I do not account of my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And the last word goes to Jesus, who said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad in our persecutions, our sufferings, our humility, our tears, because his blood is more precious than our life. Let's pray together. And as we pray, what I want to offer are a few prayers um, of Paul himself from Philippians and Colossians. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In Colossians chapter 1, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we give you thanks and praise, Jesus, that this is true. In Jesus' name, amen.